0: I want to start by just being open with you about preaching. And here's a little problem that pastors can encounter as they study the word of God, as they prepare their sermons. And I encountered it. Sometimes the Bible will baffle us. I know you don't think I'm brilliant, so that's probably easy for you to understand. But yes, the Bible baffles us. We're, we come to a passage and we're like, what? Huh? Really? Is it really saying that? The Bible will tell us stuff that for us, it sounds true right away, but it becomes tough to process. And so we're left turning it over in our minds as pastors, trying to figure out what do we do with this truth? And I have a perfect example for us to look at for one of these passages. It's uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Would you turn there? I hope you're there already. I have been working through this book with uh, this church, and this verse itself is going to set the tone for today's message. Peter is writing to encourage us, if you can believe, but he's using these words. Verse 17 says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So you, you might hear me say that, and you think, okay, I, I get that. that. That sounds true. It, it feels true. We believe it's true. But, but wait a second. That's actually tough to process. It takes a little time to understand We hear this second truth behind it, like we hear background music in a movie scene behind the main dialogue, and that background music is saying something to us about suffering. So as we hear these words, we're trying to process them as something happy while hearing something sad. How is suffering for doing something good ever better than anything? Like, do you want to suffer? I don't want to suffer. When I do something good, I want to be rewarded. Do you want to be rewarded when you do good things? At least if you get nothing. Nobody wants to be punished for doing something good, right? Is anybody that way? Because you have a problem. Nobody wants to be punished for doing good. Nobody wants to, to suffer for doing good. And in truth, I'd rather come into Christ. I'd rather not suffer at all. I'd rather that be like the guarantee. I, I became saved, Jesus, and now I will never suffer again. But that's not the case. So Lord Jesus, as we look at this, we have to ask, what is this all about, Lord? What are you trying to tell us here? And the answer is that this is about our salvation. It's about the grace in our salvation. And the tough-to-process truth is that God's plan, his grace comes to us in a fallen world so that it includes our suffering to accomplish his greater purposes. It includes our suffering to accomplish his greater purposes, And it's only ever going to be better for us to suffer for doing good than for doing evil when it's God's plan. So I don't know if I'm still getting that, but I have to process it. We have to work through that together until we can find the grace in it for us and for the world that watches us go through the various trials that we go through. We all understand that suffering takes grace out of our lives. When you go through suffering, it it removes grace from you. That's why we look terrible when we're suffering right? Thankfully though, God in his grace knows how to sneak grace back into our situations. When we don't think there's any there, God can still put it back in. And so here's where I see grace for each one of us today. Our Christian suffering, according to God's grace, is never ever meaningless. God uses your suffering to make hope and faith and truth and and love, all these things that come to us through salvation, he makes those more obvious through the things we go through. And specifically, Some of us will suffer so that many more people can be saved. So 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 is going to help us prepare for any suffering that we have to do for Christ by showing us how grace comes through, to show us the graciousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to lead you through four ways to fully embrace your gracious Savior. Here's the first one. And I just want to make sure. Are you ready? Okay, you're not ready because when it's me, I do want you to make more noise. Okay, good. All right, so the first way that we embrace our gracious Savior is this we let Jesus settle your sin problem. Let Jesus settle your sin problem. The verses we're studying today are all illustrations of the means of grace. Last week, Pastor Todd led us through as the beginning of this service, talked to us about the way that grace comes through to us. We need grace, but we're studying this summer the ways in which God brings grace to our lives. So this is a means of grace sermon, and it's about salvation. It's the chief way, it's the pinnacle way in which God puts grace into your life. So all these verses, they are examples and illustrations of the means of grace, and I want you to take them all to heart. You will need reasons to keep going when you're suffering. You're going to need some help to see beyond the extra difficulties encountered because you have turned to Jesus Christ and followed him. So I want you to be able to trust that even in the hardest situations, grace will come through. Grace is still going to be active in your life. And you'll be able to count on it because we see it active in Jesus' life too so we're ready to look now look at verse 18 we're going to see how our gracious savior relates to us it says in verse 18 for christ also suffered for christ also suffered once for sins and now peter is going to explain to us two things how jesus suffered and why he suffered so how did he suffer? well he suffers sometimes the way we do unjustly if there was anything right about jesus suffering he, he suffered unjustly. The righteous Jesus suffered for the unrighteous us. And he was put to death in the flesh. So, why? Why did these things happen to him? It says that he might bring us back to God. So, process this with me. Did you catch what God snuck into Jesus' suffering? You might know all the things that Jesus went through on the cross. And it might look horrible, and it was. But what was was God putting into that moment? When Jesus suffered, it was grace because it was a means of grace to us because he settled our sin problem. He brought us to God. Romans 5, chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, elaborates on this. It'll be on the screen. It says this, For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. That's you. For one might... One will scarcely die for a righteous person. It rarely happens that people will, will, um, will even risk their lives just to, to die for someone that's good. Though perhaps for a, a good person, one would dare to die. But here's the amazing thing, the grace. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ actually died for you. He died for me. And since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. This is huge. This is the grace in our lives. And Jesus' death on on the cross is how God pours grace into our lives. His sacrifice demonstrates God's eternal and deep love for each one of us. And his death settled our sin problem. It met the terms of the religious law that condemned us to wrath and punishment and eternity without him. He fulfills the requirements of what was needed to avert that wrath, that anger of God. And so if you're with Jesus, if you have trusted in him, if you have asked him into your heart, if you have believed on his name for salvation, his sacrifice applies to you. You receive his righteousness in place of your unrighteousness. And you get to be made alive in the spirit as he was. So let me ask you something. Are you getting that? Are you with me, my young adult friends? They're my friends. It's been awesome. We've been eating lunch together, getting to know each other. It's been cool. But I want to know, are you getting this? Are we understanding that this passage is talking about the atoning work of Jesus Christ for sinners to make them free from wrath so that they can have eternal life? That's what's going on there. It's a summary of the atonement, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But behind it is what I want us to focus on, and it's this. You and I, we have a sin problem. We had a sin problem before we came to Christ, and even now, we still, sin is still killing us. We live in a world where that's what it does to people. Sin kills people, and that's why you and I need to be saved. But many people will not let Jesus settle their sin problem, and one of the reasons they would not is because of their pride. Pride keeps us from going to God. People don't fully realize their own unrighteousness as compared to Jesus' righteousness, and they refuse to make the trade. They think, well, I've got some good stuff in my life, God. If I met you, you'd notice that. You'd notice that I go to church, you notice that I give, I serve, I, I do some things, I raise a nice family, I clean up pretty good on Sundays, I don't do all the bad stuff, I don't really swear that much, I don't drink that much, I've never killed anybody. You know, I'm nice to dogs and cats and babies. All these things, all these ways in which we justify ourselves, and we think, that's ought to be enough. Why would I ever need Jesus' righteousness to cover my own? It's pride. They just don't see a need to go to Jesus. Pride has created a blind spot when it comes to the consequences and the gravity of our personal sin. So if you don't know why Jesus is offering to save you, I want you to consider this different analogy. Imagine that you are treading water in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Okay. Imagine you're treading water in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, believing that because you can rock the egg beater, that crazy kick. You know what? I can't do it. And some of you are thinking, can that guy even swim? Yes, I can. Yes, I can swim. And I don't sink. But you so you're thinking that you're going to survive this because you can do the egg beater. You can float on your back and you can hold your breath a really long time that if you can do all those three things, you will be able to swim to the shore all by yourself. But you won't. You won't make it to the shore. It doesn't matter what you think you can accomplish on your own out there at the sea. You will need to be saved from drowning or you will die. So it might not be a cute analogy, but I hope it makes things clearer for you. You can't defeat the sea of sin problems in your life by believing that you can just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. There's no dorying this thing. If you've been trying to just keep swimming along, how tiring has that been for you? Is it even working, just treading water? How far have you really got in your life just doing things that way? Instead, I would rather you take the grace of God Take the grace of salvation by embracing Jesus fully and let Him pull you up out of the water and teach you to do what only you can do, to walk on the waves. That's how you embrace your gracious Savior. That's the first way. What's another way? The second way we can embrace our gracious Savior is to let Jesus preach to our enemies, let Jesus preach to your enemies. Now, I say the word enemies, and some of you immediately can think of someone in that place, an enemy, someone who doesn't like you and you don't like them very much, somebody who's caused you some problems, someone who deserves a little justice from God and payback. Do you have an enemy in your mind? Do you have an enemy in your mind? And nobody wants to put it up there? Okay, thank you for participating this morning. I appreciate that. Come see me in the tent. I have a coffee card for you. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, here's what I want you to do with that enemy for a second. Erase their face. Don't think about them anymore. Until we develop this passage a little bit further, because I want you to understand something. This passage is challenging. This is a baffling passage. And we need to, like, right-click on it with our mouse or or double-tap our screens or do whatever it is that you do to access more information about this before we go and and see who our enemy is that we want Jesus to talk to. This little sentence in verse 19 is packed with phrases that increase the processing time, that, that make us go, like, we have to think through this a little bit more. And in the commentaries that I consulted, but you probably can see them anyways, um, just by looking at the passage, there are at least six questions that are raised when people study this passage. I just wanna show you three of the head scratchers that, that I've been wrestling with for hours and months and, and, and really a lot of conversations and days preparing for this message. Here are the three, three head scratching questions for us before we even look at the passage. One question will be, when did Jesus go and preach? When? Like, when did these things happen? That's something people have to understand. What did he preach? What did he proclaim? And who are the spirits in prison? These are important things for us to answer because if we're going to make a statement, if we're going to apply the truth of God to our lives, if we're going to bring something out of this word and and ask people to live according to it, we better know what we're talking about. So we have to go in and ask these questions. So let's look at the verse together. Verse 19. For Christ, being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed To the spirits in prison, I'm going to steal a little bit from verse 20 to complete the sentence. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. I asked the first group if this was anybody's life verse. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of ways we could try to interpret this. Some of them aren't useful to us. Some of them required extra studying, but I think the one interpretation that fits best with the context of Peter wanting to encourage the church who will suffer is to see it this way. Jesus, while his recently crucified body lay entombed, his physical body was entombed, he being made alive in the spirit, he went and he had some words with those prisoners that are mentioned there. Jesus had words. Has anybody ever had some words with you? You know? I'm just being polite here when I say he had some words. He had something to say to them. And by doing this, these words that he shared, this proclaiming, this preaching, he put all of his spiritual enemies on notice. And so at this moment, what we see is God is now layering the grace. He is now putting some grace into this story by telling us at the lowest point, at the lowest moment in the gospel plan, while it appeared that Jesus was down for the count, he was actually somewhere else in his spiritual form proclaiming a victory to his enemies and to ours. And at this moment, it had looked like God's enemies had killed the lamb. But here's the problem. They had never contained the lion. They had killed the lamb of God, but the lion of Judah was never contained. Come on. Someone wants to say amen. amen. Thank you. I needed that. But so does God. I mean, this is amazing. Right? It's amazing. There's a grace. There was a dead man in a tomb. He's supposed to be down for the count, and yet his spirit is up proclaiming to people. So this is not Jesus going to some dead people that were killed before or during the flood and saying, hey, I wanna give you a second chance. Now that I've died for you, I just wanna let you know you can, you can have a second chance because I'm Jesus and I love you. There's no gospel where you get a second chance after death. This is not Jesus proclaiming a nice message of salvation to people that died in their sin. No, this is the lion roaring about his victory. He is boasting the same message that he said from the cross. It sounded quiet then, it is finished. But now, it is done! Right? This is awesome. This is a statement. This gets me pretty pumped up. This is the highest this sermon's gonna get. (laughs) But seriously, for the fans here that are looking for things like this, guys, I want to get you thinking about this, but I hope everybody can come with me. So I'm thinking of ways that we saw this happen in our lives because this is a great spectacle, but we touch it here. There's a moment in basketball, if you're a basketball fans, when Vince Carter, the greatest Raptor ever, made a dunk. He won the dunk contest and ruined it for the rest of people. And he's he doing things, and he comes over to the camera, and he goes like, it's over. It's over. They've got memes about it. It's over but if you're not a basketball fan, I know we have more baseball fans. This is an even greater moment than in 2015 when the Jays were in game five and Jose Bautista got up and he hit a home run to send the Jays ahead and then he flipped the bat at his enemies. Oh man, oh man. Right? Jesus is doing that. Can you imagine? He's not the lamb of of God anymore just dying there. He is the lion of Judah. And he's, yeah, I've won. Satan, this is that moment. You tried to bite my heel. I just stomped on your head. Yes. Yes. Come on. That's what's going on here. So maybe, maybe if you have enemies, maybe if you have enemies, sometimes when they're holding you down, you wish that you could give them a little bit of that kind of word. You could talk to them with that kind of power. But there's nothing in this passage that tells us that we are supposed to talk to people like that when we're suffering. In fact, when we're suffering, that's probably the wrong time to get talking. That's not the right time for you to start tweeting and writing notes and telling people off. That's no in- we're not instructed to do that. That kind of stuff, it comes on your behalf from the Lion of Judah. And it's not aimed at human enemies, but the spiritual forces that war against christ's rule this is where we double click this is where we right click on this and and go in and see a little bit more information if we go to genesis 6 you'll see that the spirits in prison are the powers behind the idolatry of noah's day in the world before the flood genesis 6 says that the sons of god and the daughters of men cooperated to their demise and it's not stated, but I think what was going on there represents the extreme of idolatry, where they mix supernatural power and human lust and human progress all together, and God's enemies manage to take the world way, way, way offside. Today, we still have ways that people get offside with God. And we don't call it idolatry. That, that's an old word for us. We don't like those kind of words. We look for more sophistication in our religion now, but I still think we have idolatry, but we would call it ideologies now. And sometimes they get into idolatry because it's the same pursuit. It's the pursuit of some type of supernatural otherworldly power that combines with the idea of freeing people up to follow their lusts while they can also progress in this life and apart from dependence on God. In idolatry, man and demons work together to create a separation from their creator. We try to make a world apart from God's rule that works to our personal advantage. This is like Satan tempting Eve with fruit that was attractive and delicious and even a sense of eye-opening to the world, but ultimately it led to suffering and death. So if you're tracking with me, if you're processing this, I want you to think about how ideologies have within them a delicious enticing offering that in, that encourages us to cooperate with satan even if we don't recognize it even if we don't understand it to cooperate with a an anti-god ideal against his sovereignty so there are ideologies there are lots of them if you want to do them all the isms i went to a, a, a site called helpful helpfulprofessor.com because he had collected 52 different ones we're going to cover it here but hopefully you can think of your own um liberalism conservativism Socialism, communism, a theocracy, which at first might even sound good. We say, well, shouldn't we want that? That sounds like a godly thing. It's not always a godly thing. We haven't seen that working. Um, agrarianism, totalitarianism, democracy, colonialism, globalism, for me, perfectionism, all the isms. That A definition from the same site says an ideology is an actionable organizing principle rather than just simply a belief system or a way of thinking about things, you've moved into an ideology when you're actually basing your life on the ideas that it espouses, And it's moved from ideology into idolatry when that System of, system of thoughts takes you away from God's sovereignty and his rule. When it takes out the idea that you can be saved and that you need to be saved, it's moving to idolatry. And when it begins to exalt men and women and sex and power and lust and success above the things that God wants in your life, it's definitely idolatry. So the ideology in the 120 years pre-flood is not named. We're not, it's not given us a name as a religion or anything, but it's there. And it originated with Satan And Eve and Adam cooperating in disobedience to God, following what they thought was a good idea, enjoying the sin of the moment. And then they started blaming each other. They had harder work, more pains, more frustrations, more suffering. And in the end, and in the end, and in the end, it led to death. And it's like they didn't see it coming. Peter seems to have this reality in mind as he writes to this church to encourage them about the reasons that they, as Christians in a fallen world, might have to suffer. There are ideologies out there that are working against God and his people and his will. And in my experience, I never know what to say to those people who cause you to suffer. I never know how to respond to the people that cause us to suffer unjustly. I wish I had words for them, but I'm glad that I don't take my anger out on them, that I don't speak to them the way I might be tempted to speak. Because as I read scripture, I realize that these are just people, and they are not the true enemies of God. Our real enemies are the spiritual forces that come against us. And Jesus knew, and he still knows exactly how to address them on our behalf. As our gracious Savior, he has already preached a message to them so that you don't have to figure out what to do while you're suffering. Jesus is talking to them saying, it's over. You can't get this person to follow you. He still follows me. She still follows me. They love me and I love them. And there's nothing you can do to pull that away now. So there's grace to us in knowing that Satan's way does not work and it will never work. And every ideology inspired by him, whether we know it or not, is condemned. Jesus has redeemed human suffering and conquered death He is the one building a church despite all of evil's attempts to stop it so that when someone comes to you as an enemy of God in in their behalf and tries to cause you to suffer, you don't have to figure out what are you supposed to say. Jesus has already said it all. So that was a long point. This one is a normal size point. Here's the third way to fully embrace your gracious Savior. Let Jesus... Restart your life. Let Jesus restart your life. This is going to be from verse 20. And this verse re- refers to the devastation caused by the Lord's wrath and the global flood and in Noah's flood. But it also shows us how God brought grace in through salvation for Noah and his family. Verse 20. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons, so Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were brought safely through with all the wild animals and all the things that God brought into the ark. Noah was living in a time of complete moral corruption. Whether they knew it or not, maybe not, but we know that that was God's word on it. That was his judgment on the system that day. Uh, Noah and his family had found favor, though, grace in the eyes of the Lord because he's been a faithful person. We see all this in Genesis 6, which this verse refers to. And God resets the world and restarted their lives in grace. So if you want to do your own study in this, you could look to this verse and, and do a little keyword study on the means of grace by looking at things like God's patience as he waited to judge the world. You could look at how God prepared an escape and as, a, as an act of forgiveness for, for Noah and his family, because while they were faithful and while they were righteous, they weren't perfect. They were still sinners. He saved sinners. And then finally, that God kept them safe. He saves. Those are the means of grace to us. And you'd also need to look further into Genesis chapter six through nine to see that at that moment, the whole planet, come on with me, golfers, the whole planet kind of gets a mulligan. Who golfs? If you don't golf, this is what a mulligan is. And I need them because sometimes when I golf, I try to knock the ball and it goes way off course. It gets in a terrible spot. And the Mulligan is this rule. It's actually a rule of grace, because it recognizes that things don't go right, where the, the player can come up and grab the ball and say, "I'm going to start over, like it didn't happen." So with this Mulligan, God saves the planet that He created. Our salvation is kind of like that, except it's personal. And when Jesus talks about mulligans, he has a much better illustration of them. He uses better illustrations by his ministry in the Gospels. In there, uh, he, he casts out demons and restarted people's lives who had been, who had been tormented by their, by their spiritual forces. He forgives sins and restarts lives from a place of forgiveness. He heals broken bodies. He raised people from death. These are all way better mulligans. And I know my analogy is kind of weak, but I was thinking the earth is round and a golf ball's round. And so they kind of work together that way. So you'll have to go with me. But my point is this, is the church, we get the benefit of the mulligan. We get the benefit of the mulligan. And when we're taken from a place, when we're saved from a place that we were never meant to be, and we're put in a situation that is now out of the weeds and out of the pit, out of the swampy spot. Out of even the clubhouse, if that's where we thought we were supposed to be and enjoying it. God takes us from all these places that were never where we are supposed to be, and he puts us back on course with his plan. So when Noah's family entered the ark, they were accepting God's grace of salvation. And in faith, they allowed him to restart their lives, to pick them up and put them in a better spot. And it was not an easy restart. Going into the ark was not a beautiful trip on a cruise liner. It wasn't Gilligan's Island. It wasn't a cruise in the Caribbean. This was a nasty boat full of animals. I don't know what you think Noah's Ark really looked like and what was going on, but I'm going to guarantee you that if you look for a picture of what happened from Etsy, which I did, and you see one of those kids' pictures with all the colorful little lions and the, fin- and the bunnies and everybody just hanging out in the boat, having a great time, it wasn't like that. This is another story that the pastors at Harvest would love to ruin for you. It's like Christmas. I think, I was saying, if I was doing this, if you want to make it more accurate, at least take that same boat and put one of the animals in the water floating with crossed eyes. It was death, it was death going on. If you look at a real flood, if you, if you Googled real flood pictures where animals and things die, it's devastation. And they were being transformed. They were brought safely through something. And we might forget that it was difficult for them to be saved. That's why they had to go in faith. But God protected them in that ark. And so when the floodwaters receded, life on earth restarted again. Peter is using Noah's ark to illustrate the means of grace in our lives. The ark was the vessel that God offered to protect the faithful people of Noah's day from his wrath. Jesus is the new ark that protects the faithful church from the coming wrath. So between Noah's day and Jesus' return, we have all these opportunities to go in to enter into the ark, to go into that spot and let God restart our lives. So the obvious application to me is, how do you want God to deal with you when he finds you in the spot you're not supposed to be? Considering his coming judgment, do you want him to restart your life or do you want him to leave you where you lie? Do you want him to restart your life or do you want him to bring it to an end? The gospel here, the the grace here is that because of what God has done through Jesus Christ, if you needed to leave behind even the most corrupted way to restart your life and start following Jesus, you can. You can do that. Salvation is to everyone in this room and to everyone that you know. Now you can go back to your enemy. Salvation is for them too if they want it. We can all get the benefit of being a righteous person because Jesus has transferred that to us. And back in Noah's day, the space on the ark was limited. But in Jesus, there's room for you. There's room for the sinner. There's room for the wild person. There's room for anybody that will turn to him for salvation. So go to him to be saved and stay with him to stay safe in the Lord and trust the messy process of being restarted and renewed at the same time. Salvation is a grace that restarts your life. And I would encourage you. If you haven't made a decision to be in Jesus, the new Ark, don't miss the call while the door is open. That's another way to embrace your gracious Savior. The last one is this: Let Jesus handle. Uh, sorry, let Jesus handle your appeal to God. Let Jesus be the one that handles your appeal to God. Peter is going to give us one more nugget of wisdom before we're done with these verses to help us. He's been linking the past with his present, which still connects with our present and our future. He's been linking Noah and the church, and now he's going to link baptism and the flood. So look at the scriptures in verse 21 to 22. Baptism, which corresponds to this, what's this? It's about the idea of escaping wrath and and trusting God and his salvation coming to us. It now saves you, not technically through the removal of dirt from a dirty body, but as an appeal to God through Jesus Christ for a good conscience conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What Peter sees here is that this lamb of of God that was on the cross is the lion in heaven who's on our side. And baptism corresponds to being obedient to the God who sent the lamb for us. Baptized people trust in God's escape from wrath plan that he graciously provided for them. It expresses our desire to have Jesus represent us before the Father and to make us right. When you're baptized, you ask Jesus to, to put his righteousness on you in place of your unrighteousness. You ask him to serve as your heavenly priest, your heavenly go between, your heavenly lawyer, and your witness and your friend to go to God on your behalf. Who else? is qualified to ask God for your salvation. Whose hands are you placing your eternal life in? If given the choice, would you prefer to represent yourself to God or have Jesus do it for you? Don't make it rhetorical. Who would you want to stand before God to ask for your salvation? You or Jesus? Right, I want him too. On my death day, on my best day, and on my death day, I'm still far better off claiming Jesus as my advocate than than asking God to judge me directly. Don't look at me, Jesus. I mean, don't look at me, God. Look at Jesus. I want his righteousness to apply to me right now. We need an advocate. And you need an advocate because you already have an accuser. You need an advocate because you already have an accuser. His name is Satan, and he will try to do everything he knows to see you condemned before God. When you have sincere faith, Satan will try to convince God that you are a goat instead of a sheep, that you are a faker instead of a follower. You can see this play out in another book in the Bible called Job, but I suspect that even if you haven't read that, you only needed to spend a little time staring at the ceiling in a dark room to understand how Satan accuses a believer. We've been there. We've wondered about our own righteousness at times, looking up, going like, Lord, how how can, I'm not, I'm not worthy. Listen to what I've done. I know what I've done. I know what I do. And Satan, he will highlight your sin and pinpoint your spiritual weaknesses. He is relentless. But God, but God has sent Jesus to become your powerful friend in heaven. And while we might not fully understand how that exchange works out, we understand that Jesus is far more powerful than Satan. And we have, of the blessing of him helping us in heaven. But we know that on earth it's difficult. Christians get accused of being evil when they're being good. Christians get accused of committing crimes when all they've done has been conforming to Christ. Christians will get accused of being fools when all they've tried to be is faithful. All of this is done in attempts to slander the name of Jesus and condemn your faith in him. And worse, worse is that when we as moral people have one little slip, when we make a mistake, the world is ready to pounce and heap guilt on you for disappointing your God, even though they don't believe in him. They will hold you accountable for the way he's supposed to, you're supposed to live. That's one of the ways we all suffer. We suffer shame. We suffer guilt. We suffer ridicule. We suffer from isolation. We suffer slander. We suffer the verbal abuse of mean spirited people and it takes its toll on us. It affects even the way we want to worship so that when we come to church on on the worst days, when we're just hearing from Satan and we're forgetting that Jesus talks about us to God too, we don't even want to lift our eyes to heaven for fear that God will only see us as sinners and, and forget that we want to be something different. However, In grace, our Father chooses to see us through Jesus' eyes. In this room, you're not the person that you looked at in the the mirror as you left for church. You're not the person that everybody says you are when when they're calling you a hypocrite or they're thinking that you don't measure up. You're something different. You are the bride of Christ. You are a friend of Jesus. You are a sheep instead of a goat, and you are a follower instead of a fake. So as we close I want you to know that God looks at your life and he sees the difference between you and your accuser. He recognizes his sheep from the goats. He knows the tender among the tormentors. You may feel alone on earth, but you are supported from heaven by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is exalted over everything else in creation and he speaks to God on your behalf. And he speaks to the world on your behalf. And he intercedes with his father for you. And his father listens to him. And every enemy that you have will answer to him for the wrong that they've done to you. That is the grace of our salvation. And that's why we have a gracious savior. Let me pray as our worship team comes. Father God, I thank you for so many illustrations of grace within your word. I thank you for the, the depth and the breadth and the height and the, the incomprehensible nature of our salvation. Lord, you, you flooded our lives with grace, grace that we didn't deserve, grace that we couldn't earn, but grace that you commanded to us in your love. And Father, I ask that even as we come to this church, and we head into another week, and as we stand to sing about you, Lord, you would, you would flood our lives with a sense of grace to help us where we are going into a world where we are suffering because of our choice to follow you. Lord, it doesn't matter what kind of suffering it is. Whatever it is that's taking the grace out of our lives, Lord, we ask you to replace it in abundance. Lord, give us more. Give us more than the enemies take from us, that we might rejoice and sing your praise forever. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all you've done for us. We just wanna continue to praise you in Jesus' name, amen.